So for those of you in here, if you could go ahead and turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13. In just a few moments, I'm going to ask you to stand as we read chapter 13 together. We read just as a, just as a physical sign of our reverence to the Lord and to his word. But before we read together, I just want to kind of recap of where we've been recently in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, but before we even do that, however, I want to just kind of give a roadmap for the next couple of Sundays. The next couple of Sundays are going to be a little bit unusual. Uh, next week, uh, John Loftus is going to be here. Um, don't really need to tell most of you who John is, um, but for anybody who's visiting or been here for less than a year, um, John is the founding pastor of Living Hope Church and now serves as our denomination's regional leader in his semi-retirement. So uh, he'll be here with us next week. And then in two weeks, we're going to do a recap of the entire books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So we've been looking at the books just one chapter at a time and, and really just kind of want to look back and say, okay, what, as we look at the, the books just sort of as a whole and sort of see the whole forest from the aerial view, what are, what are the themes that should just stand out to us that we want to apply to our lives? And so that's going to be in two weeks. And then obviously the following week will be baptism and quite excited. And then the fall after that we'll begin in the book of Esther. Um, but today marks chapter 13, which is the end of Nehemiah. And so as the book began, people, as, as the book of really Ezra and Nehemiah are one kind of continued story. As the books began, the people were in exile. They were really down at sort of the lowest point in their history. The city of Jerusalem was abandoned. It was in ruins. And now they are back. They are being a community again. The temple has been rebuilt. The walls have been rebuilt. And the city is safe from the surrounding enemies Holiness and just this commitment to the Lord is on the rise. So civically, things are good. Spiritually, things are going well. And in chapter 12, we actually see them dedicate the wall. They have a, chapter 12 is all about a dedication service of the walls that they were dedicating to the Lord. Just, there was sort of this high point of just this collective, we want to live for the Lord, and that they recognize just sort of the revival in a sense that has been taking place throughout sort of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. But in chapter 13, what we see is 12 years pass between chapter 12 and chapter 13. Nehemiah is gone for a season of time. And while revival really did happen, there was not a total transformation of heart. And we see that they begin to go back to old patterns and old sins and old behaviors. One of the things that Nehemiah teaches us is that we need more than a good experience or sort of this one-time spiritual high with the Lord, but we need a savior and we need a savior who is consistently and who is always with his people so the main point we're going to see in nehemiah chapter 13 is covenant breakers need a covenant keeper with them always covenant breakers need a covenant keeper with them always and so with that i'll ask you to stand if you're able um, ask you to stand now as we read chapter 13 together On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashab the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where he, they had previously put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the vessels, 
and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked to leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. Verse 8, and I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and, then, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. Verse 10, I also found out that the portions of the Levites who had not been, the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them into, sta- into their stations, and all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasures over the storehouses Shemaliah the priest, Zodak the scribe, and Pediah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on that day when they sold food. Tyrants also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, Why is this evil thing? What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Verse 19, And as soon as it began to grow dark in the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the door should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load may be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Verse 23. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him, even him, to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehodiah, the son of Eliashab, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I establish the duties of the priests and the Levites, each from his work. 
and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. We may be seated. May God bless the preaching of his word. Well, in, in movies, there is a classic line that, that most of you would know. You've seen this in childhood movies, probably growing up. That, and the line is, you, you know it by heart. Even if you haven't seen the movie, you just know the line that, and they lived happily ever after, right? That's sort of the, the classic movie line. And so whatever happened in the, in the movie, right, all the drama, all the ups and the downs, all the, all the hard things that happened, the hero comes in, the hero saves the day. And then they live happily ever after. Or two people fall in love despite all obstacles, despite all that stood in their way. And then at the end, sort of through everything, they're able to find each other and they live happily ever after. Even if they don't use the words, they lived happily ever after. They'll have this scene where, the, you know, the end of the movie, they're in this warm embrace with each other. And it's just obvious that they, they are just living happily ever after. As if sort of the hard part of life is falling in love with someone. That after you, you know, sort of, you know, that, that, that really is the way it works. After you fall in love, no one sins or, you know, makes any mistakes ever. The world does not sort of sort of, you know, the world just is handed to you after you fall in love. That's really the way it works. So anyway, as you know, that, that's obviously not true. But that, that movie works, that, that idea for a movie works because, because we want happily ever after. We want sort of after sort of the hardship, everything just ends well. And through after the first 12 chapters of Nehemiah and after the book of Ezra, there's been so many ups and so many downs. It would seem like we're on this trajectory where chapter 13 will end on this high note. But whenever that depends on real people in the real world, that is not going to happen. And so one of the things we see in this chapter is that when people are left alone, they go back to their old ways. But the, they have hope because... Their hope is not in them, but in the promised Savior that would come. So main theme, again, we're going to see this morning is covenant breakers need a covenant keeper with them always. Three points we're going to look at this morning. And point number one is covenant breakers. Covenant breakers. So here the people are under a covenant with God. They, these are the people that we're reading about in chapter 13. We're going to talk about some of the sins that they committed, but all those people who were who are committing all these sins, all these sins, they are God's people. And he has given them relationship and identity and his protection. These are, these are his people. These are his people not because they keep the promises of God, not because sort of they obey the law. They are his people because he, he loves them and he cares for them. Their entire history is that they are his people because of the goodness of God. But then out of that, as a result of sort of recognizing that they are his people because of his mercy to them, they are called to walk in obedience as a result. Certainly that has been the story of God's people since Abraham, that he first calls Abraham and then calls Abraham to walk with him. It's the story of the entire Old Testament people, that they are under his covenant because they are his people. They are meant to walk in holiness and obedience. But for them, for the people of Nehemiah, for the people of chapter 13, it wasn't just sort of the history of their people that they were sort of under this, right? It can feel sometimes, right, like as a country, we're, we're under the Constitution, right? And, and we're, we're, you know, that, that's sort of the, the document that binds us all together and it governs us. But, but it can feel at times, right, And because this is true, but, you know, th it was written by people who we read about in history books, and it was written in a different era than today. There, there's a lot of differences, and, and it can feel more like history that I'm reading about with the Constitution than not something that I, I really am, you know, sort of 
feel this personal connection to. But they didn't have this issue either because for them, it wasn't just sort of they read about being under God's covenant in history books or sort of people that they read about long ago. Most of the second half of Nehemiah is them renewing their covenant with God. It's the leaders and the people and the priests and the Levites who, seeing God maintain his promises, renew their promises to God. One of the great themes of Nehemiah has just been this great collective repurposing of themselves to walk in obedience. Right? Even after in chapter 12, it's the walls are completed. They are protected people. Sort of God, sort of they see the fullness of God's sort of collective care for them as a collective and see his protection. And then they once again come together and say, all right, let's live for him again. That, that's chapter 12, right? We see in chapter 10 this great, they're re-signing the covenant so that they will follow him. They, they, they want to follow the Lord. That was the last thing we read about. Well, spoiler alert. They didn't follow God. Now, four main areas that they failed in in this chapter. One, we see that they were people of compromise. Right? So they were supposed to follow God. They were supposed to follow God in every detail of life. But here's, they, they, they compromised. And here's to the, the level their compromise reached. One, one example he get, talks about in verses 4 through 9 is we have this guy, Tobiah, who is living in the temple of, of, of the house of God. He's living in the house of God. Now, Tobiah, you may remember his name. This is the same name who was listed multiple times as one of the leaders of the enemies of the people of God, the people that they were have to have nothing to do with for their own protection. This is the same Tobiah who mocked God and who mocked his people earlier in the book. Now, not only are they living at peace with him, he's living in the house of God. Now, Tobiah is not a repentant man, but rather it's the people who had moved so much that he now lives among them, which is just symbolic of the spiritual compromise the people were making. They were also a people of just carelessness. So verses 10 through 14 notes how that the temple is just once again under neglect, that, that the Levites aren't doing the work that they were meant to be doing now, partly that's going to be on the Levites, but mostly it's going to be on the people for not bringing the offerings they need so that they could do the work. The offerings that they had just collected in chapter 12, the offerings that they had just said in chapter 12, hey, we're going to continue to this. We're going to, this is our commitment that we're going to do this. They now were not giving of the offerings. It's on the leaders for not highlighting the need and for giving a vision. So once again, they... They, 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 they promised offerings, they promised care, they promised labor, and once again, it doesn't happen. And so they promised big, but they slowly but surely had cared less and less for the things of the Lord and more and more for the cares of the world. And so it took a little over a decade, but slowly and surely, care, careless neglect had just begun to be rampant. We see here that they were a people of consumerism and greed, Verses, 22, verses 15 through 22, just note how, what the temple was like on the Lord's day. And it was a bunch of people, it was a bunch of God's people buying and selling and doing work and making money. Basically, the temple was now seen as this place you can make a profit and you can make a quick buck. But it was not a place to be God's people gathered together in worship of him. It was a place to make money. It was the place to take advantage of your neighbor, not to love them. Now again, this is not some 
sort of new, this is not some treatise against God being against any sort of profit or about people making money or the greed of capitalism. That's not, that's not what this is about. This is about how the, 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 the temple has a purpose and the Sabbath has a purpose, that these are holy spaces and holy days and they are just being trampled on by the people. And you can kind of get the sense, okay, if this is what the temple is like on the Sabbath, what do you, what do you think the town is like every other day? And so just a chapter ago, they're all giving of offering, they're sacrificing for their neighbors, they're sacrificing for the temple and for the work and for the mission. And now it's just, how can I gain because my bank account is what is most sacred to me? And then we see that they were people once again of intermarriage. Verse 23 through the end of the chapter, that once again we see that they had married the enemies of God's people, that they didn't even know their, half the children said, right, didn't even know their own language, the language of Judah, because they only knew the language of these people. Now, this was the problem that they had had for generations. This was the sin that had led, most of, the most overt sin that had led to the exile. Now, again, in case you're newer to this, we covered this earlier. This is not about, this is not sort of, again, some some teaching about not marrying peoples of other races or ethnicities that would in any way apply today. Not only is that not forbidden in Scripture, it can actually really just display the love and the unity that transcends earthly division. So that's not what this is writing against. But they were told not to marry certain people that would lead them away from God. So they were, they were given, in, in this time frame, a, a group of people that they were not to marry because they would, that would lead them astray that had been their history, and now they are back at it. And even the sin of intermarriage, I mean, it, it, was, it was one of these, it was easy to see. It wasn't hidden. It wasn't some sort of subtle vice. This was an obvious sin that the whole community could see, and now they are back at it again. So one of the things we see is that God's people were covenant breakers, all of them. They had the law, which was meant to help govern and guide their behavior. They had, they had an experience with God. They had their identity as God's own people. But because they had sinful hearts, they couldn't keep the covenant, and they fell short. Now, just to, to note the obvious, and just to be clear, this isn't just a them problem, but this is an us problem. All of us here are those who cannot keep the commandments of God. Now, our, our four defining sins might look a little different than their four designing, defining sins, so I think every generation wrestles with, with, with living to, to, for today rather than, rather than ultimately investing our hope in God and in eternity, and we are just like them in that every brick we lay on the path of compromise is a brick we lay on the path towards destruction but none of us are though none of us walk as we need to walk none of us walk as we are required to do none of us walk in a way that his mercy would call us to do we are all those who fall short of what is required under the law under the perfect holy god and one of the things we see is that if you break one commandment in any part you're you're guilty of all of it and i would submit that I think everybody here has broken more than one, that we are a people who can place no hope in ourselves. We're under a covenant, but we can't keep the covenant, and so we are all covenant breakers. So, main theme that we see is covenant breakers need a covenant keeper with them always. So, second point we're going to look at is in need of a covenant keeper. 
in need of a covenant keeper. So here are the people, again, it's pretty clear, right, throughout this chapter that they went back to sin. It was very clear to see how they were covenant breakers, how they did not fulfill their part of what they were meant to do. But really the problem in this situation ran even deeper than that. So in verses 23 through 29, again, it's talking about the, the problem of intermarriage, right? And it mentions how since Solomon, that he knows that, that since Solomon, this has been an issue. That even Solomon, who was sort of the height of, who represents the height of the kingdom and sort of him and David represented sort of the height of godly leadership in a sense, even since him, this is the number one issue that has plagued God's people. This is the issue that led him astray. Their entire history is that for this, that for, her, that for every step forward they take, they just seem to take two steps backwards, and it has been quite costly. It's not a coincidence that he's making it clear, okay, Solomon was sort of representing the height of the kingdom, and he, and, and he fell, and there has just been this demise from Solomon until exile, and it has really been tied to this then. So it had they, their history, it was it led to their exile, it had led to their demise. And then finally, in Nehemiah, after they return, after again receiving so much mercy and grace and living in the painful consequences of it all, they seem to take it seriously. They, they, they have this, earlier in the book, there's a, okay, we're, we're going to remove it from our midst. We're repenting of this. We're taking it seriously. Like, you know, they, they, they confront it. They challenge it. They, they sort of remove it from the community. But 12 years later, we see that they are back at it again. But not only that, one of the things we see is it's not just a problem in the community that they wrongly tolerated that, that it was happening. Here's, here's how high it went. Here's who's involved and was part of it. It says in verse 28, Eliashab, the high priest, was part of it. So not only is sin the problem, it's not just that the people break the covenant, it's that no one's keeping the covenant, right? Eliashab is the high priest. He's the one who was meant to intercede for the people, but he's just as guilty as they are. So one of the things we see, it's not just that there's, that there's covenant breaking, it's all human hope they would have. All sort of, any place you would invest sort of this human hope is nowhere to be found. They can look all around the community of God and they just, they can't find anyone. The best representative they have just, falls just as short as they do. I'm a brother-in-law who was a, uh, like a high-level swimmer in college, so he was a Division I swimmer, and he was actually on the USA swim team. He was, he was a really good swimmer because um, athletic genes runs in our family. And um, no, brother-in-law, okay, okay. Um, and it does run in his family. Anyway, he was this high-level swimmer, and he was talking about this one meet where they were going against the number one team in the country, and they had several Olympians on this team. Like, it was a big deal. And so at his college, like, this was going to be the match that, like, this was going to put them on the map because, you know, they, they were good swimmers and good schools. And so anyway, they were talking about how hyped up they were to go against this team because this was the best of the very best. And they go in, and the first sort of the sort of first meet they had, they sent out their best swimmer against kind of like this other team's JV team in a sense to kind of however scoring works to try to get this, these points early. And their best swimmer just gets crushed by like their ninth best swimmer. And so he's like, yeah, we had that collective like, I don't know if it's worth us even going out anymore, right? Like their very best just got trampled on that day. And so it was like the collective high went to like the collective low as quickly as you could imagine. Listen, here's the high priest of the people of God involved in this. And this is sort of the one you would look to is just as involved as they are. So what we see is they not only, covenant breakers not only need 
a covenant keeper. You can look around. There won't be one from within. One of the things they realize is their only hope needs to come not from without, not from within. So covenant breakers need a covenant keeper with them always. Third point we're going to look at this morning is with them always. With them always. So verse 6 gives us the timeline and sort of what's going on. So Nehemiah, if you remember early in the book, Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king. So he was one of the king's trusted aide. He was a cupbearer. And he originally was, that was his original job. And he had asked for permission to come back to, to, the, to Jerusalem to help the people rebuild the walls, to kind of gain all the things that we'd seen to help the people walk in holiness, rebuild the walls, all the things. And the king had allowed him to go. But now Nehemiah is summoned back. So between chapter 12 and chapter 13, Nehemiah is summoned back. And we kind of, we get the timeline that this is the 32nd year of the, of the reign, and we won't have to, we don't need to sort of write all the math up here just to say, put it all together. 12 years pass between chapter 12 and chapter 13, between the dedication of the wall, between this high moment to now this demise that we read about in chapter 13. And we don't know the exact timing of how long Nehemiah was gone, but we know Nehemiah was gone for, for, for a period of, he was, just, he was gone for a lengthy, lengthy period, that, he didn't, that the journey itself took months on each way, and that he wasn't summoned back just to sort of you know, hand in a report and then leave again, that he was summoned back to be in service of the king. So Nehemiah was absent for a long time. He was, he was absent for years. And one of the things that happened when Nehemiah was absent for years is the people began to walk in sin again, that he, they began to walk in the ways that we saw outlined above of greed and compromise and intermarriage and carelessness. I don't know if any, so, so there's some, like, if, if you're younger than me, so if kind of any, any kids in here, um, I don't know if you're ever kind of old enough to be left alone from, with your parents or just you're in a context without your parents. I don't know if you act any different when your parents are in the room, when they're not in the room. Um, I'm not trying to like stir up anything. Please be consistent with how you with how you act. Um, I'll just say I was not always consistent when I when my parents were home and my parents were not home. So I remember when, when the age where like my parent like we were old enough not to be left with a sitter. You know what I mean? And so we had we had a bedtime which was nine o'clock, but we didn't really you know. So bedtime that was like in theory that was our bedtime was at nine o'clock. But bedtime was actually we had these windows in the front of the house and you could see headlights kind of coming up the driveway, and so bedtime was as soon as we saw headlights coming up the driveway we come, up. and we actually knew how exactly how long like we had to get up to bed between when we first saw the headlight and how long it would take them to open the garage door and come inside. So we had it down. So we actually had like our whole routine and we had it down that we had like twenty seconds to spare on like a really good day. So we knew. So like there'd be times where we were playing like a video game and like we're trying to get like one last shot in or you know we're doing whatever we can because we do exactly how long we had to kind of get upstairs because we'd see the headlight and then we'd get into bed and I think my parents knew because you know there's all that like as soon as they walked in there was all like the fake snoring and stuff like oh yeah we've been you know we've been asleep for hours but anyway so there's this sense of when mom and dad were gone things were things were a little different but here's the reality at our, at our core we're all the same as these people we're all like this. We, we need authority with us because our hearts are not fully transformed. And even while he, our, our, our hearts are being transformed, we, we need more than an authority with us. We need, we, need, we, need, we need someone who is empowering us to walk in holiness because 
We cannot do that on our own. We are not those who can just sort of, sort of be perfect and be holy on our own. So here's what we see. Nehemiah was gone and sin increased. And I'd like to believe that I'm different and that I'm holier than them and that I'm less vulnerable than them. But here's the reality is our hearts are just as prone to wander as theirs were. And so here's where chapter, thir- so chapter 13 ends. And that ends, in a sense, the history section of the Old Testament. So after this, so, so the other books are, are the prophetic and, you know, in, in order of the New Testament, you know, there's the, obviously the prophetic writings and poetry and all this, but this is the end of the history section of the Old Testament. And one of the things that I just find so striking is, is it doesn't end finding a group of people who just need a little bit of help from the coming Messiah, just a, a, they don't, it doesn't end with, boy, you know, if people get sort of set on the right path, they're, they're, they're pretty good to go, and they just need a little guidance from this one who would have come. What we find is, as the Old Testament comes to a conclusion is that we need one who will come and who will never leave his people, who will always be with them for every moment of their lives. So what these people needed was Nehemiah, but they needed more than Nehemiah because We need more than a person. We need more than a person who is even with us all the time. Because what we know is even people sleep and miss things and make mistakes. Even here we see that people like the high priest were those who sinned. We need more than someone with us always. And we need God who is with us always, enabling us and empowering enabling us always and empowering us always, interceding for us always, and who never sleeps and who never slumbers and who never sins and who never misses a moment on the job. We need a presence that we cannot provide. Covenant breakers need a covenant keeper with them always. And so what do we see from Nehemiah chapter 13? Largely the same themes that we've seen through chapter 1 through 12, that we are a people under a covenant with God that have come with all the blessings of having our identity in him and our, and our purpose from him and our mission with him and our future with him and relationship with him. And we are these people. We are God's beloved, not because we are faithful, but because our God is faithful. And so we need a savior who is perfect in all his ways. We need a savior who is with us in all of our days. We need a mediator who never stumbles. So Nehemiah 13 helps us see the need of the people of God through every age. And a few hundred years later, as we would turn to the book of Matthew, we would see how God would respond to the need of his people. See, Nehemiah 13 tells us that we are a people who are helpless in our condition, except for one thing, that we are a people who don't need a spiritual high and then to be left alone. We need God himself always with us. I hope you know the rest of the story, which is praise God. That is exactly what we have in Jesus Christ. Nehemiah points to the blazing need of the people of God and Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all we need. Which means next time you sin and your guilt is calling you, your guilt is high in your mind, you can can remind your heart that you are beloved, 
not because you are perfect, not because you are the one who walks infallibly, not because you are the one who never stumbles along the way, but because, God, because Jesus Christ is perfect. He and he alone is your righteousness. So when your guilt comes calling, you have something stronger to answer to it. The next time your heart feels distant from God, you, you, you can remember, yeah, at times it can, it can feel like I am distant from God for whatever, but, but here is what is true, that I have one with me right now. Next time you, you have a temptation that is calling and that, that, is, that is sort of pulling you away or just in your mind you're distracted by a particular temptation, you, you can remind yourself that you have a God who is right now with you and who is actively providing a way of escape for you from temptation. In a couple of weeks, some of you are going to be going back to school. Here's the reality. Your God is going with you and he is with you in every conversation and with each struggle and with each temptation. All we need is, being, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And for those who do not have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, I want to close by saying this. I I used to have this teacher in college who um, basically, if they would do their grading, basically whatever the highest score was, that was the A. So like if the highest score was an 80 and 80 was, was, was got an A and so on down the line. So it's called grading on a curve, right? So it's sort of like you, you lower the score based on, you know, how, however the best is. So the, the best students got A's, the next best got B's and all that. So you didn't have to be perfect. You didn't have to ace it. You just had to be better than average to sort of get a good grade, right? And so, you know, and I was, this is not true, but it was my ethic at the time that, that C's got degrees. So I love this class because really you just had to get like a 60 and you were fine. And anyway, and we had a lot of like deals like, hey guys, like don't, ru- don't be the guy that ruins the curve for everyone because it only takes one outlier and that, that's like, they don't know we're capable. Like everybody just take it easy and we'll, we'll, we'll all be fine here. So we had, we had all that kind of stuff. But anyway, there was this, so that's how, the, how he graded, and, and it seemed fair to us because the best still got their A's, second best got their B's, but I think sometimes people can think that, that's probably how God works, right? I don't need to be perfect. I just need to be okay. I just need to be a little better than average. You know, as long as we're not the worst, we're going to pass and we'll be fine, and that, it will all work out at the end. God is perfect, and he is holy, and he is just, and he has never lessened his standard, and he never will lessen his standard, not one bit, not one inch, not one iota. And so to be made right with God, we can either try to be perfect for every second, for every, for every, for every step, for all of our days, But just know this, none of us will ever be perfect. We are all lawbreakers, every single one of us. So any reliance we place on ourselves and our ability to come to God on our own will never lead us to God. But God sent his son to live a perfect life for us. And then not only did he not only live a perfect life and die in the place for the penalty that we deserve, he rose again and is alive right now. And he sent his spirit to be with his people all of their days. And his presence is with us and he empowers us and he loves us and he offers you life in him. So our only hope is in Jesus Christ. He is the hope of all people. He is he and he alone is our salvation. But whether you're coming to Jesus Christ for the first time or for the 500th time, 
He and He alone is our salvation and He is sufficient for all we need. He is the Savior we need. He is our covenant keeper who is with us always. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to be a people who walk in holiness, who walk in increased sanctification and increased just walking to be more like Jesus Christ who put sin to death, who, who, take, who take this seriously. But Lord, ultimately, would we be those who take this seriously but place no hope in ourselves, but we place all of our hope in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is the one who fulfills the law of God, that Jesus Christ is the one who is perfect, that Jesus Christ is the one who is obedient, that Jesus Christ is the one who is sufficient, and that his spirit is the one who is with us, empowering us, and guiding us, and leading us, and who is with us always. So Lord, as we labor to look more like you and to walk with you, Lord, would we be those who place no, who place no hope in ourselves, but place all of our hope in Jesus Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.